Hello everyone, my name is Martin Manguel, Dairy Educator with Michigan State University Extension, welcoming you to another episode of the Virtual Coffee Break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. The topic for today's episode is calves. Dr. Barry Bradford will spend time with Dr. Mike Steele from the University of Guelph. They will discuss what's new and what's coming in terms of calf research. Let's go ahead and get started. My name is Barry Bradford. I'm a member of the Michigan State University Dairy Extension team and really excited today to have Dr. Mike Steele joining us from the University of Guelph. Mike is really a very well-known researcher and um, a guy with a ton of practical knowledge on dairy production, particularly around calf management. And so I think we're going to have a great conversation today. So Mike, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks very much for the invitation. Really appreciate it. Do you mind starting off just giving us a little bit of your background? I think you have a fascinating life story and I'd like to fill people <laughs> in on that a little bit. Well, well thanks, Barry. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm. That's how it all started. And I've loved cattle since I was a toddler. And I thought I wanted the dairy farm and I went to the University of Guelph and I noticed uh, a lot of my electives were molecular biology or biochemistry. And I thought, well, this is kind of weird. Like, why am I, why am I drawn to this? Like if I want to be a dairy farmer. So I, I went back and I thought about it more and I went to do an MSc degree and I did it with John Kantz at the University of Guelph. And that's where I learned about hypothesis driven research and it kind of gave me a path forward if I wanted to be a researcher someday to move forward. So that was where it really started. Then I, I worked in industry a lot after my MSc degree. I worked in China uh, in the dairy industry and I worked in the Canadian feed business uh, as a nutritionist. And that was a lot of fun. It's where I, I learned like the practical applications of the research. And I, I went back to do a PhD at the University of Guelph. I always said I would never go back to the University of Guelph and do all three degrees there, but I did. And it was turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. I've scoped where I want to research for the rest of my career, being in gut physiology during that time, and was highly influenced by Brian McBride, my supervisor, who taught me how to run a program. So after that, I worked in industry a little bit and worked as uh, my first academic position was at the University of Alberta. And then I just transferred to the University of Guelph. And I don't know, it seems like not that long ago where I started my career and I still you know, didn't know if I could actually be a researcher. And sometimes I still have those feelings. It, it's a really bizarre <laughs> world, but uh, here I am and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing here at Guelph. I think you're pretty solidly there, Mike. <laughs> uh, so I, I, one quick aside, um, I've probably asked you this before, but you're one of only a handful of people I know that's actually, you know, lived in China working in the dairy industry and then, you know, is, is come back to the North American uh, dairy sector. And, uh, just curious, are there one or two tidbits of things you learned from your time there that you use today, just in terms of the way a growing industry there evolved or, or what have you? Oh, it, it was a fascinating time. It was back 15 years ago when their growth was still exponential. Yeah. So you'd visit there, you'd come back to Canada, go back there, all of a sudden there'd be a new 10,000 cow dairy. It was just like exponential growth there at that time and different forages, different feeding strategies, different reproductive strategies, different performance. But you were there at a time where everything was growing so quickly and also the productivity of the animals were growing 
exponentially as well. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mostly want to pick your brain today about calf management. In my mind, you've been doing some of the more impactful work in that space the last few years. And But if we start off with, what do you think are the most impactful changes that have occurred already in calf management? What do you think is here to say? I think if you look at the last decade, you have to look at milk feeding levels and how they've been increasing over the last, uh, especially 10 years, but even the last 20 years. And this idea of letting the calf consume whatever they want or, or more of an accelerated growth or some people would call it natural, you know, feeding behavior and, and amounts that they would actually consume versus the restricted feeding. And I think that's the biggest change that I've seen. Um, and after that, I think the step down protocols for weeding would also be where other people would be going where our industry is, is heading to and what has changed with the establishment of step-down protocols for weeding. That, that makes a lot of sense. And do you see that the vast majority of dairies you interact with have made that transition already? Or you think we're kind of midway through that progress? I think we're about midway through that uh, process. And there's still a lot of debate even scientifically right now of what is the best move forward. Uh, and there's still you know, many companies and many farms where it does make sense to feed less milk. Uh, and there's still companies recommending that. And there's a huge debate scientifically in our field. It's almost 50% of the calf researchers think that uh, milk should be restricted. 50% believe that they should be uh, being fed more uh, milk to accelerate growth. I kind of benefit from really appreciating both sides of the research. Uh, where I'm at, is I think that calves, if you want them to grow more in the first four weeks or three weeks when they're not consuming starter, uh, you feed more milk. Uh, that's to me where I think it really shines to feed more milk. And then I think you can have like gradual feeding strategies thereafter uh, to make it work. But I think that's where, uh, where we're at in the field. I, I, I think that there's been a lot of adoption of accelerated programs or more natural feeding milk programs but a lot of them have failed because they haven't accounted for, you know, either their, you know, practical environment considerations, maybe they're overcrowding, uh, maybe they're not feeding the right starter, maybe they're weeding too early, maybe there's too much of a pathogen load in their, in their setup. So I think over the last 10 years, we've kind of been exploring these new areas of feeding more milk, but there's been a lot of hiccups on the way. And I think eventually we're going to figure these out where we know if you want to feed more milk to get more gain, this is how you have to do it. And I don't think we're quite quite there, but we're getting close. And that's a nice transition into um, at least some of the work that I think you've been doing. Um, one of the challenges with feeding more milk to calves is that weaning process, right? So let's talk a little bit about some of the new research in that space that you've done, or maybe you can point to some of the work others have done as well. Yeah, we've been looking at weaning strategies for the last five years. And even when I was working in industry before academics, I started to do research there. And I think some of the biggest findings is if you're feeding more milk to a calf, you have to wean that calf later. If you wean them early, there won't be any growth advantage to, you know, the, they'll gain more for the first four to five weeks. But if you wean them at six weeks, by eight weeks, they're the same weight uh, compared to an animal that's weaned, let's say, two weeks later or you know, that, that growth advantage goes away. Right. So you have to wean later. And we've also been looking at step-down protocols and anything that's not abrupt is good. If you can have multiple steps, I think it's obviously a lot better for that animal. But where we've been really focused in that area is understanding the gut more and how the rumen develops during weaning. And, you know, looking at more compartments of that calf's gut, like the, the lower gut, the small intestine and the large intestine. And we're just probing there right now. And trying to figure out 
what role does the lower gut play during weaning and could it possibly like inflammation or damage of this lower gut during weaning which you see in other models like piglet models could this be happening in a calf and how does that contribute to that that weaning lag and growth that you sometimes see on farm uh, so that's that's some of the work that we've recently been doing uh, in our in our lab so let me take a step back real quick because you know I think one of your key points there is if you're going to feed more milk you need to feed it for longer so one of the questions if I'm a dairy producer that would jump to my mind is we already know that the daily cost of feeding um, milk replacer is is going to be the greatest daily cost you're going to incur in a heifer's development, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's going to go up if you're feeding more. And then it's if you're going to extend time to weaning, that's going to further add, you know, that high cost window. Are, have you seen or have you done some economics on the long-term benefit of that? If you're going to feed a more intensive program and feed it longer, does that actually pay? Yes. So there's, not a lot of work relating to different weaning strategies and the long-term implications of that when it comes to lifetime production of that cow. Okay. Say if it was an abrupt step down versus a gradual, there's not a lot of data out there to support that there's a long-term impact. But really, if you do the economics, and let's just think about this experiment, you know, weaning calves off high milk at six weeks versus eight weeks. If you look at the economics of growth, it's probably gonna be the advantage of feeding less milk, so weaning earlier but you do have that weaning dip in growth there. So there's probably, these animals are more susceptible to uh, diseases or, or other stresses that could affect things later on. In addition, they also grow a little bit more when you wean them later. So if you, you measure them and we followed some of these animals for months after weaning, there still is this difference in growth post weaning. And you see that a lot in other species too, like piglets. Uh, I just think we're kind of catching up in the calf world to some sure. of this other work. But yeah, it's still there. So if you think about some of these average daily gain metrics uh, pre-weaning, we can debate whether it's from more milk or the calves just consuming more starter. But if you have more growth during this pre-weaning period, which you will have if you wean later, and you relate that to some of the associations with milk production in first, second, and third lactation, there's an economic case there. But if you don't believe in that, then Really, the short-term economics means wean earlier, but I, I think there's a movement in our industry to look at, you know, we're, we're just starting there and we have to get a lot better at it in the calf business is the long-term implications of some of these feeding strategies. But I, I think you have to believe in that in order to justify it economically. Yep. So, in the, in, and I know that math gets tricky, right? Because you, you really want to account for perhaps uh, changes in incidence of disorders and then what's the cost of a given case of diarrhea post weaning for example so it's tricky so tell me a little more about um, what you've learned so far in terms of development of the gut and the co-development of the microbiota there and how that influences health of the calf in that critical window of time uh, during weaning we've been doing a lot of work because we expect that there could be a lot of hindgut acidosis occurring in calves during uh, this weaning phase. So this is kind of interesting because we talk about hindgut acidosis in lactating cows, but if you look at calf weaning pens, you'll see a lot of this bubbly manure. And this got us thinking about, okay, we talk about rumen development a lot, but what's happening in this uh, lower gut too. So we've spent a lot of time looking at 
um, some of the microbial profiles of not just the rumen, but also the, the uh, fecal samples and even colon biopsies that we've been collecting. And right now we're just at a phase of characterization of what microbes are there. But we've been uh, tracking, um, you know, a lot of, you know, of these uh, bacteria that will relate to endotoxins. And we think that this calf might have, uh, you know, this buildup of endotoxins that could potentially be going through a leaky gut, which is another experiment that we've been uh, characterizing. So calves during this period of weaning, they, they do have a leaky gut. Uh, the physiological consequences of that or the consequences of that on a farm, we really don't know, but this is where we're doing our research right now is, you know, what does this mean? What are the long-term implications of this? But right now, uh, unfortunately, we're still just at a characterization stage. Sorry to interrupt there. Uh, I'm curious if you would take a step back and just, for anybody listening who's not real familiar with the concept of leaky gut really across species, fill us in a little bit more on what you mean by that. Yeah, it's becoming uh, of interest to a lot of scientists and particularly in other fields outside of dairy biology. But, you know, this concept that perhaps the gut is permeable to things that it should not be permeable to that could cause local inflammatory responses and whole animal inf inflammatory responses, which are quite costly from an energetic standpoint. So um, this is the, the notion of Perhaps in some feeding regimens, uh, we're causing a leaky gut, which could be compromising health and also productivity in this animal. And uh, we've characterized this by, you know, giving them markers. Uh, we dose it to them and then we collect their urine and we collect their blood. And we see uh, if these markers actually make it into the urine or blood. And, and that's our measurement of if this gut is leaky. But really, we're at the beginning stages of this, and it's uh, something our lab's invested a lot of time and a lot of effort, and we're still trying to get better at it. Uh, and hopefully, we can make some of these relationships between leaky gut and productive performances on farm that could hopefully be of use in the future. That's exciting work. I, I'm sure you're familiar with Adam Mosier at Michigan State, who's done a lot of pretty groundbreaking work on weaned pigs. And mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of correlates there that we can pull over and, and at least ask questions about in, in calves as well. W one other big question, and I know you've done some work in this space, is of course not only how much to feed wet calves, but uh, what to feed. So we could feed non-saleable milk on our farms. We can feed milk replacer. We can feed milk replacer with various different components or protein concentrations. We could feed transition milk, right? So, what's your thinking in this space now? What do you advise people if they're open-minded to lots of different options here? First, a blanket statement. Uh, I'm going to start talking more, more about milk composition uh, first. And I think that you can feed a whole milk or a milk replacer. And I think it really depends on the farm what is uh, the best option for them. But my interests right now are uh, really focused on milk composition. And less so uh, the last five years, six years, I've really been focused on feeding level. But I think the composition is also very important. And there's been like great researchers in this area already that I'm trying to just build upon some of the work that they've been doing. So when I say composition, typically, and not all milk replacers are like this, but typically they're higher in lactose and lower in fat compared to whole milk. Sure. And our lab has interest in trying to figure out what, is that, what does that do to the calf uh, from a metabolic standpoint, but also a gut health standpoint. So we've, we've been investing time doing, you know, 
larger experiments, but mainly basic research on, you know, what is the difference between these compositions and what are, what are we doing to the calf? And trying to explore, you know, the metabolism of that animal, the physiology of the animal, but we're trying to do these experiments where you actually see the long-term response. So what I was talking about previously yep. as well. So that's what we're focused on a lot in addition to a lot of our colostrum uh, research, which is a, a huge part of our lab right now. So with colostrum, what, what particular questions are you asking there? Yeah, so we, we've had a lot of fun doing colostrum research over the last five years. It's, it's become a huge part of our, our research program and we've been looking at you know, pasteurized versus non-pasteurized uh, colostrum, what that does to the calf, tube versus bottle feeding, uh, delaying colostrum feeding by six to 12 hours. What does that do to the calf? Not just passive transfer, but also gut physiology and gut microbiology. So this has been a lot of fun and a lot of these papers are in the Journal of Dairy Science. Uh, but what we've received the most attention on is the extended feeding of colostrum. So, you know, typically in our industry, we're feeding that one or two meals of colostrum and then we go straight to a whole milk or a milk replacer. And that that's a very abrupt transition, similar to an abrupt weaning. Uh, you can think about it in the same way. But I think that we need to spend more time on that as an industry and make sure that we have this smooth transition. And if you characterize what's in the, the colostrum of these cows, but also their second, third, fourth, and fifth milking, it's really full of a lot of bioactive molecules that that calf needs. And we're in a lot of cases, we're not delivering that. So We've been doing a lot of experiments and we've been planning a lot of experiments in this post day one supplementation of colostrum. And we're trying to figure out what it does to the calf's gut and what it does to the calf's, calf's metabolism and, and long-term productivity as well. Um, so that's a big thrust in our research program right now, uh, in addition to exploring just the other bioactives within colostrum outside of immunoglobulins. It's interesting, isn't it? We, we get so focused on sort of one aspect of something like colostrum, which is clearly important, that passive immunity, but it, it makes us sort of uh, put blinders on to everything else that it's doing and not thinking about, like you said, that, that abrupt switch and how for other aspects of biology that may not be appropriate. Yeah, so the bioactives we're really interested in, Barry, are the oligosaccharides within colostrum and transition milk. Uh, some of the proteins like insulin is really high. IGF-1 is really high, even in transition milk. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that this is a really interesting area to explore. And, and also the fatty acid composition is very different in colostrum and transition milk. So uh, I think the, there's a huge window of opportunity to, do, uh, to learn more about what is in colostrum outside of immunoglobulins. And to so, consider that someday maybe in our feeding programs. Yep. Uh, one thing I've had filed away in my head for a number of years now that I just have found interesting is th these oligosaccharides or, or basically soluble fibers uh, are 10 times more abundant in human milk compared to mid-lactation cow milk. But I don't really know off the top of my head what that number looks like in colostrum or day two or three milk. Is it is it much more similar to human concentration? Yeah, well, yeah, the oligosaccharides are quite different, but yeah, the there'd be very high concentrations of these oligosaccharides uh, that would even be higher in some circumstances compared to human uh, milk. So in 
in particular the three prime sialactose, which is the main oligosaccharide, is very high, very potent in colostrum and also transition milk. But when you look at the carbohydrate fraction of milk, um, basically the biggest difference is it's lactose for a cow, but in the colostrum, 50% of that lactose is gone and it's these oligosaccharides that are basically prebiotics for this calf. They also have other functions, but I'm just, uh, I think their biggest function would be, a, you know, a natural prebiotic that this cow is trying to, to deliver to this calf in the first milking, but also the second, third, fourth, and fifth milking as well. Uh, so it's, it's a great area to study. I think it will have a high impact later on, and we're trying to figure out what uh, management regimens can influence this. Exactly. That's a yeah. tricky piece. But I know, I know there's a couple groups that have been working on that, and I think it's exciting. Can you give us uh, one or two clearest responses that have been seen in calves that have been fed this transition milk for a few days before going to mature milk? There's two publications that will be out soon in the Journal of Dairy Science. And the first finding that we noticed is that their gut develops more when you're feeding this transition milk. So when you have this abrupt transition from a colostrum to uh, in the experiment we did was a whole milk, the, the intestine just did not grow. So when you, if you look at the structure of it, the villi, there, it was just uh, not a lot of development in these animals compared to the ones that were fed more of a gradual transition to, uh, to a whole milk or just kept on colostrum. So more gut development is, is what we've been seeing. And then the second study, we found that the levels of immunoglobulins are also higher, but the, the persistency of this immunoglobulin level in the first days of life also is higher. So just because they're not being absorbed by the gut doesn't mean that they're not doing anything and not that they're influencing pools even outside of the gut of immunoglobulins. So I think that this area is totally wide open again. And this is why we're, we're going back to this question of, and this is the beauty of calf research various so things passive for, um, what is passive transfer? I, I haven't really received a very clear uh, message on what it is. And you know, this is some of these basic, basic uh, things that we talk about in calf nutrition and management, but we really don't understand it. And there's so much potential to make a big difference. So yeah, I look forward to this area and, and sinking my teeth into it. It's one of those things that you can't define. You know it when you see it, Mike, that's the, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> No, I know exactly what you mean, and I think you're doing great work there. So uh, we're, get, we're getting to where maybe we can wrap the conversation up here. I want to know, in your mind, so if you go to a typical sort of progressive dairy today and they're raising their own calves and, and they kind of do the standard thing, what's the one thing that you come to them and say, this, this is going to be worth your time and money to invest in making a change in your calf management strategy? I know it varies by farm, of course, but you know, what's the most typical answer you might give to that question? Yeah, the typical one is measure average daily gain on your farm. Uh, okay. Is Although it's not a recommendation of how you feed uh, or how to wean or what kind of milk replacer to go on at what point, um, I think first off, as an industry, we need to actually know how our calves are doing. And if we don't know our average daily gain, and I'm talking a birth weight to a weaning weight, which is an investment of a couple minutes per calf, I think that information is so incredibly valuable. And if you don't have that information, you can't really make recommendations on your farm or make changes on your farm without measuring that all the time. 
uh, is so I, I guess hopefully this becomes a lot easier for farms because I realize the stress of moving a calf uh, is a consideration but hopefully with automation we can do this and start weighing calves even on half body skills uh, multiple times a day and get really good metrics of how our animals are actually growing because it's very rare for me to see a farm that actually knows those metrics and without knowing those metrics I don't think we can make progress in this field so that's my number one recommendation know your know your average daily gain I'm glad I asked because I would not have predicted an answer that's fascinating so yeah. um certainly i could see using that to sort of decide whether changes need to be made in the in the program mm -hmm. do you think we have enough data now sort of relating average daily gain pre-weaning to like you were talking about before sort of long-term lifetime productivity that you could identify animals to yeah. call uh or, or not keep in the herd yeah and you're seeing this a lot more so in the US. You know, I think that this is something to consider or at least streamline these animals into different production uh, sectors, but I, I think it's a good idea to think if an animal has a very low average daily gain pre-weaning to consider not having that animal enter the lactating line long term. I think this this makes economic sense uh to consider calling or if you have a a lot of people are doing lung ultrasounds now. That's yep. that's another groundbreaking area outside of my realm of research. But you know, if we can identify some of these sick animals or, or crypto animals or, or animals with severe diarrhea, I think it does make sense to streamline them into different production sectors rather than the lactating or, or milk production sector. Well, this has been a fun conversation. I, I personally could go on for hours, I'm sure, but. Uh, I appreciate your time very much. Uh, again, thanks to Mike Steele from the University of Guelph for joining us today to talk about calf management. Mike, any last words of wisdom? It's an exciting time to be a calf researcher. We're publishing more research as calf researchers uh, than ever before in the history of calf research. So yeah, I'm just excited that, that uh, this, this is actually an item of a podcast and we're talking about calves for for 20 minutes. I think it's fantastic. So thanks a lot for exposing this, this uh, topic. I appreciate it. Take care, Mike. Great talking to you. Thanks, Barry. We would like to thank Dr. Bradford and Dr. Steele for that interesting discussion today. Certainly, we look forward to learn more as research continues in calf development, as they are literally the future of our industry. Join us next week when farm management educator John Laporte interviews Ben Spitzley from Greenstone Farm Credit Services. They will get you ready as they discuss how to be ready to meet your lender and what are lenders looking for when they are meeting with you. I know I'm looking forward to that interesting discussion. So please join us then.